0: The four Sundays of Advent, we are exploring those four titles that were given as a promise to God's people when the prophet Isaiah revealed the messianic prophecy and called the Messiah by these titles. Last week we explored Wonderful Counselor, and today we explore Mighty God. It's not as jazzy a title, perhaps because we have become so used to thinking of our God as mighty or as we often say and pray, almighty. So for us, it takes us back to a time where mighty God was not normative, was not the status quo, a time when very few peoples of the earth believed in only one God, when most people had a whole pantheon to choose from. You can see this in ancient Egypt, you could see this in India in the Hindu pantheon. You can see this across many different cultures all over the world, especially as it was relevant in Japan. And the best thing to do is to look at how people depict their deities. If you look at how they're drawn or sculpted, what you have the opportunity to see is that people were trying to convey an image that these deities were other. They were not like us, they were not human, even though some of them seemed to be human-esque, but they were more than that. A God is the divine, a supreme form of presence. And while we, who are descendants of Abraham and the Abrahamic faith tradition, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, while we have such a normative understanding of a single God, this was something radical for the time. Most peoples understood that they had maybe a localized God, but that there were other gods. Maybe they were worshiping the deity that their particular family had been worshiping, their parents and their parents' parents. But they were aware that the world was filled with so many gods, so many options. They were less monotheistic, worshiping, knowing and worshiping only one God, and more monolatrous. They believed that they had chosen one God out of many different options. But this will shift. As time goes on, especially when God's people go into exile in Babylon, they will determine through prayer and discernment, through holy conversation, and arguably the movement of the Spirit of the Lord, that there is no other God but our own. And we have descended from that, and so we have received that through countless generations now, that there is only one God, and that we are fortunate enough to not only worship that God, but that that God knows and loves us. So for us to go back to a time where the words mighty God were revolutionary is quite difficult. But it's true. In fact, if we go back to see who was one of the first people in the scripture to call God, God, we find that it is not Abraham, but it is actually his wife, Sarah's servant, Hagar. Hagar was procured from Egypt. She was not Hebrew and She had served Sarah. They of course had been in Egypt at one point Sarah and Abraham and they had received a lot of earthly wealth including slaves and servants and so Sarah had been unable to conceive so she did what was culturally appropriate at the time and set aside her servant Hagar to bear a child by Abraham that Sarah would own as her own child as if this child had been born of Sarah. And so this process was begun at Sarah's bequest and Abraham did father a child with Hagar. But that changed the dynamic. Suddenly the dynamic between Sarah and Hagar was not the same as it was before. Sarah had not born a child of her own, but Hagar had. And Hagar had a new sense of who she was upon becoming a mother. And it didn't sit well between the two women. And so God told Abraham, do what Sarah tells you to do, but do not worry about the child that you have with Hagar or Hagar. I will watch over them. And so Sarah had him kick Hagar out and the child. And she wandered into the wilderness, And there in the wilderness she became parched and hungry and hopeless. And she was worried that they would die, so she took the child and she set him a ways away underneath a bush so that the sun would not destroy him. And she went a ways away and she mourned. She cried. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to her and told her that she did not have to fear, for the Lord had taken notice of her and was going to ensure that her child And that she were safe and issued a prophecy to her about this child this child ishmael is the spiritual ancestor of islam and so the world was changed with hagar and ishmael but when she had completed her holy conversation with the angel of the lord it is hagar who says i have seen the god who sees me a god who recognizes me and chooses to care for me with great power, hence the word mighty. An absolutely powerful and mighty God who took note of her and did exactly what God promised to do, took her to a place where she could be safe and raise her child and rise to adulthood he did and founded one of the three Abrahamic faiths. So this concept of calling God, God, came further into Genesis than we would realize. While well, you can read the book of Genesis and quite immediately you start noticing the word God. Those are actually not the first account of someone calling God, God. But for us it's important because we have grown used to the concept of there only being one God and not really looking at a bunch of different options. We might think there are other religion options, other Christian denominations even, but the idea that there are actually other gods is more difficult for us. But over my course of time studying non-Christian religious traditions, I can tell you that it is fascinating to see how people depict deities. If you go to India, they look pretty human, but they do things to distinguish that they're not the same bodies that you and I have. They might paint them blue or give them an extra set of arms. Nothing conveys that I'm not human like having two sets of arms. They might be a little taller. They might wear things that are a little more intimidating. And so you can see that in India, one way of showing that these are not human. In ancient Egyptian religion, you'll notice that they like to put on the heads of animals. That way you have a very tall and healthy human body from here down, but from here up, it's very clear that that is a deity and not a human being. In fact, the only human being looking deity in ancient Egypt was Pharaoh. When he became king, supreme monarch over Egypt he was believed to become divine and he is the only one shown fully human. Others like Osiris have a different color skin to show you that they are not like the rest of us. If you go to Japan you can see over there that they again kind of play into the Hinduism concept of multiplying things to show you that these de- deities are not human Of course They also have a lot of deities that look like animals. So how do you know that you're looking at a kami, a a god, in Japan? Well, they may look like a fox, but they have nine tails. Definitely different than a regular fox. In fact, if we saw a fox with nine tails, we'd think that there had been some kind of nuclear spell. But again, it's trying to use a visual aid to show you that this is not a human being. But even if you look around our sanctuary right now, you'll see that for the most part, Jesus looks like you and me. For the most part, there is nothing that is really showing that Jesus is any different externally. Sometimes in medieval art, you would see the halo that gives you kind of a clue or, you know, kind of that rays of sunshine coming out of the head to show you that this person is holy. But when people looked at the Christ child, they couldn't see anything but a baby. They couldn't see that this was the fulfillment of the prophecy, that this was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. It looked just like every other baby born in Bethlehem. So the difference for us is to realize that we have been given an opportunity to decide if we are going to, in fact, lean into the arms of an everlasting Father. Are we, in fact, going to be open, authentic, and vulnerable with a wonderful counselor? Are we willing to serve a prince of peace and not a prince of warfare? And above all, are we willing to submit our lives to a mighty God? And what does that look like? For we use a lot of omni-words in Christianity. I'm sure you've had your fair share of hearing omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing. Sometimes you hear omnibenevolent, all-good. But God's people were wrestling with that concept when the prophet Isaiah spoke the Messianic prophecies to them. They were a people who had repeatedly been conquered, even before Babylon swept in and destroyed the temple. These were a people who hadn't known peace since King Solomon, and they were struggling in a world where independence meant value, meant worth, and being a repeated vassal to other foreign powers had really destroyed the self-esteem of God's people. It didn't feel like the promised land when everybody came in and took a piece of it, or when people came in and And use their power and military influence to override and overrule who these people felt they were supposed to be. According to their holy scriptures and their stories and the prophecy of God and the covenants. So these were a people who were in a place of incredible dissonance. They had heard the covenant. They had recounted the Passover for generations. We serve a liberating God and yet we are enslaved. If we're not physically being enslaved then we are enslaved through taxes and protocol, and serving political means outside of our own. And when they looked at the throne, they saw a puppet monarch. They saw someone that either the Assyrians or someone that now Babylon was putting on the throne and saying, here is your king, but they are subservient to our king. And these people longed to be more than that. And they were hopeless at this point because it didn't seem like there was going to be any help. So in a world where there's so many different deities, in a world where there's so many other options, they're repeatedly being called back to a single mighty God. How is it that we are in this place and feel this way and yet we have a mighty God? How is it that in just a few decades, they would be completely overrun by Babylon. Babylon would not only lay siege to the holy city of Jerusalem, but Babylon would utterly destroy their temple, a place where God resided. How can a foreign power profane and destroy God's temple? All of these things would seem to indicate outwardly that perhaps they didn't have a mighty God. But that's not true. That same mighty God that was professed before the people who heard the prophet Isaiah is the same mighty God that we have been worshiping this morning. It is the same mighty God that chose to come to us in a way that is completely different than any other deity. Because even though we are not the first religion to ever say that a God has come and been incarnate in human form, we are the first to show our God incarnate in human form that looks just like the rest of us. Even the incarnation of the Hindu god Vishnu is believed to be Krishna, and Krishna is not shown with skin like ours, or even people of the subcontinent of Asia. Instead, he is shown with blue skin, lest you ever forget that that is a deity incarnate. But instead, on a night filled with darkness, a small child was born. And that child was the embodiment and the living promise that we had a mighty God. Now, if you talk to people of other religions, especially ones that have a pantheon, multiplicity of deity options, then what they find is that it's really intriguing when you tell them that God came to us in human form. And mostly what they would say is, well, why would God want to do that? Why would you want to be a human? If you could be a deity, would you choose to be a human? embodied in a vessel that will age, that will get sick, that will sin, and that will die? Would you choose that? But we have a God that is so mighty and so confident in God's ability to be with us and through all things that we have a God that was willing to submit to human form, to come and be present with us, to come so that our God can say unequivocally that our God knows what it is like to be hungry. Our God knows what it is like to mourn, to struggle, to suffer, to endeavor to be loved, to endeavor to love others. We have a God who knows unequivocally what it is like to be us. And across religions, that is unique. A God that would choose to be with us in this way. A God who even now chooses to be present in Christians. Chooses to be manifest. Wherever two or more of us are gathered in God's name, God says, I am there with you. And so we have been given incredible, mighty power of our own. But when we look at this text today, and oftentimes this is the one of the titles that we just skip over, Mighty God, okay. What we should see is that it is actually a huge theological statement that we don't need multiple gods back in jesus day many jews had gone to worshiping multiple deities you know trying to cover your bases yes you know the god of the israelites the god of the jews seemed to be a sky god constantly manifesting god's self in storms and in whirlwinds and pillars of fire and pillars of smoke and the and the thunder and the lightning So we seem to have the skies and the heavens covered, but most of us live on earth, and we live by the things of the earth, the harvest, even the grass that is necessary to sustain our flocks and our herds. And so many times they would say, well, yes, we worship God, but, you know, there are all these other gods that apparently can help us make sure that the land is fertile. So they started to worship gods like Asherah. Started to worship other gods just to make sure, you know, we're still worshiping our God, but just in case there is an asherah, hopefully the harvest will be good this year. Because it's not a game. If the harvest fails, then people starve. And out of fear, they were trying to ensure that they would have everything that they need. But God says, do not be afraid. Do not fear. I will take care of you. Now the problem is, sometimes God wants to take care of us in a way that we didn't outline. That's not what we had in mind. You know, if God had asked you exactly what you wanted and how you wanted it done, I think you could probably articulate, at least in a very rudimentary way, exactly what it is that you wanted and how God could go about fixing things in accordance with your perspective. But that's not a mighty God. That's a genie in a bottle. Our God says that I see deeper than what you want. I see what you actually need. And I see that you are a people who need to be connected. You need to be in right relationship, not only with me, says God, but with one another. And that's a hard thing, because most of us could find ways in which we could help God around. You know, we could list some people you know, compile a small list or, you know, depending on how big your list might be, of some people that God probably shouldn't waste too much time on. People that, you know, you don't really want to spend time with them here on earth, and then why do you really want to spend time in eternity with them? And so you think, maybe I will help God around, you know, I'll help God out, and we can, you know, write a few people, because God's got a lot going on. And surely if you could shave some time off of Judgment Day, God would be appreciative. But the problem is that whatever list you could compile, and some of you might just have one or two people, some of us would need to get a professional person to write out the list, because as we rambled them off, we'd realize that we had a lot more than we could write. But what you would find is that some of us are probably on multiple lists. Some of us are on lists of other people that don't think that God should forgive and love us. But that's not what a mighty God does, and that's not who a mighty God is. Regardless of how we personally feel about anyone else, God loves them. Regardless of how someone else feels about us, God loves us. And it takes a mighty God to say, You could anger every single person on earth, and I will still love you. I will stand up for you. I will not let them utterly destroy you. Because in this life, there are people who will try to destroy you with their words, with their weapons. With their relationships, they will try to destroy you like they tried to destroy Jesus. But even death could not hold our Lord. And God says, I will not let death hold you either. A mighty God who can resurrect and will. Who will hold you in trust because at the end of the day, when heaven and earth pass away, God will still be. It doesn't take very long into ministry when you're working with children for one of the children to go... Yeah, but who made God? I know God made us, but who made God? Cue awkward theological silence. As you say, well, nobody made God, God always was. But that's not rational, how is that possible? And so they will continue to kind of push and nudge at that. And that's where you realize that you have one of two options. You can either double down on your faith that God always was, or you can be like, Well, it's a mystery. But really, when you start to look at who is this God, that's what they're asking. Who is this God? Who is a God that is so powerful that they can make heaven and earth and all the life upon it? Who is this God that creates not only every single person, but has created a way to redeem them? Who is that God? Where would someone like that come from? They couldn't possibly have always existed. That has to begin somewhere. And even our Bible begins with, in the beginning. But with a God who is eternal, who always was, who is so mighty, the lesson in mighty God is that even before and during and after, our God reigns. Our God reigned before there were people to worship. Our God reigned before there were people. Our God will reign when all of us are gone. But we serve a mighty God who is mighty not only in power, but in love. And a God who says that when you are gone, I will hold on to what you are. And when the day is right and your Messiah returns in triumph, I will restore you. But I won't just build you back the way you were. I will build you back to be imperishable like my love. You will never again get sick. You will never again fall and break. You will never again sin, make a mistake, go wayward. You will never wonder if you are loved. You will never have to fear for all eternity. You will know with all that you are, that you are loved and that you are mine, says the Lord. That's a mighty God. It is easier to destroy than it is to redeem. It is easier to say, I'm going to start again And that's the lesson of Genesis and Noah. The lesson is that it's gotten to be too big of a mess and we'll just start again. But even God couldn't do that. Even God loved Noah and his family. Because there seems to be this repeated theme throughout the scriptures of no matter how bad it gets, there is always someone worth saving. But we are a people of a faith that says that God didn't just look and say, some of you are worth saving. All of you are worth saving. And the struggle for Christians is to make that our truth, that every single human being is worth saving. So if you write your list, mentally or physically, The challenge from a mighty God is to look at that list and realize that I love every single person on that list. And I am aware of what they have done to you. I am aware of what they haven't done for you. But I am aware of that for you as well. And that your God, my God, our God, would say to anyone who puts you on their list, you cannot have them they are mine. I have suffered for them. I have striven for them to find grace and I will give it to them every single day. And no one can take you away from God. There is no power, there is no force, not even death can take you away because God grips you with a mighty eternal hand and will not let you go. So when we think about the messianic prophecy, it is God saying, I am coming to you. I am coming to you when you are joyful. I am coming to you when you are sorrowful. I am coming to you when you are glad. I am coming to you when you are mad. I will be with you every second and every step in your life's journey. And there will be times where we will look and we will be glad that God is with us and there will be other times that we wish God would leave us alone. But God does not abandon us. And even the oldest recorded story in the scriptures, the story of Job, it actually predates Hebrews. It is longer than those people. That story says that no matter what, God wouldn't abandon Job. Job felt like he was abandoned. Job felt that the world was literally falling apart and falling down around him. He had lost things that most of us couldn't begin to fathom losing. But God wouldn't let him go. God's words to God's servants were, you cannot kill him. He is mine. But God doesn't just say that about Job. God says that about every single one of us. And Christmas, for all of its beauty and its trappings, Christmas, for all of the sense of joy that permeates the world and for this expectation of what will happen on Christmas morning, the gathering of our loved ones and the opportunity to outwardly express that inward feeling of appreciation and blessing, Christmas at its core is actually about a mighty God choosing us. Even when we have not chosen God. So as you continue your journey toward Christmas, may you remember that no matter what today or tomorrow or the rest of your lives hold, there is a mighty God who is with you and for you. And that God is with you and for you every day, not just the end of your days, but for all time. And if you choose to embody that, and live out that truth, the more people will realize before the day of resurrection that they are loved, they are forgiven, they have not been abandoned, and that they have that same hope in Jesus Christ that sustains us now. Our job is to prepare a place for them, for our Savior had no place. Our job is to help people experience a mighty God, A God that is there, that is here, that will never abandon them, and that hasn't abandoned us. That is a high order. It is a difficult task, but it is the holiest purpose we could have. To help people experience the mighty living God that we know. The mighty living God that loves us and forgives us. And the mighty living God that chooses us over eternal destruction. Thanks be to that God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crosayunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.